Welcome to everyone here on Colin. I'm Ben Norton, and this is my first episode of a new show that I will be hosting here weekly called Rules-Based Disorder. And obviously, that is a reference to the U.S. government's claim that it's defending a so-called rules-based international order, of course, in which Washington makes the rules and it orders people around. And the reality is that everyone in the world knows, at least outside of the little bubble of the so-called West of the U.S. and Western Europe, that that so-called rules-based order is really in many ways a rules-based disorder. We see wars around the world that are fueled by Washington, and we see that international law is being discarded, and the, the replacement that the U.S. wants to create is this arbitrary idea of a rules-based order, but it's actually not written clearly in international law. It's actually an attempt to replace international law. And for my first episode here, I'm joined by a great friend of the show who also is here at Colin. He's a kind of a veteran, if you will. This is this is my first show, but I'm speaking with Danny Haifung, who has a show here, which is really good, I would recommend listening to, called Cold War Brew. So anyone who's joining us here today, I think you should go you click on his face here and go and follow him, go follow his show. We talk about kind of similar topics, the new Cold War, U.S. imperialism. And today I wanted to bring Danny on to address the incredible hypocrisy we've seen in this new Cold War. Later on, I, I, after about 30 minutes here, 20, 30 minutes, we'll invite callers. So people who are listening will take your calls and, and we can have a chat and answer any questions people have. But I, Danny, I want to begin with you today. Let's talk about what's been going on. Specifically, I want, to, I want to address Ukraine and the Solomon Islands. And I know you've been doing a lot of coverage of the Solomon Islands. For people who don't know, this is a, a sovereign country in the Pacific. It is uh, 2,000 kilometers from Australia. But Australia has been using this kind of colonial rhetoric, referring to the, the country as part of its so-called backyard, which is, of course, very similar to the colonialist rhetoric that the U.S. uses about Latin America or, you know, Joe Biden recently, he promoted Latin America to the U.S. front yard, which, you know, such a big, a big difference between being a backyard and a front yard. It still shows this colonialist mentality. But anyway, Solomon Islands is a sovereign country in the Pacific. And there was a coup attempt last year, a violent coup attempt in which there were violent riots in which People burnt down Chinese businesses. They targeted a Chinatown that is located in the Solomon Islands. And really, I mean, there was an element of racism as well, targeting ethnic Chinese people in this coup attempt. And in response to that, the government of the Solomon Islands reached out to Beijing, which is its ally. The government of the Solomon Islands a few years ago broke ties with Taiwan and recognized the People's Republic of China. And... It, in response to this coup attempt, the government said that it wanted to sign a security agreement, which is, which is very understandable considering the violence it's gone through. And the response from the United States, from Australia, and from other Western powers has been absolutely hysterical and neo-colonial. We've seen Australia invoke the idea that this is its so-called backyard We've seen calls for Australia to militarily invade the Solomon Islands. And we've even seen the U.S. government threaten publicly the Solomon Islands 
And of course, this is at the same time when the United States is insisting that Ukraine must have the so-called right to join the offensive NATO military alliance. So while the U.S. is saying that Ukraine must join NATO, it must have the right supposedly to join this military alliance, it is saying that it is it is incredible act of aggression for China to sign a security agreement with the Solomon Islands. So, Danny, I mean, I, I laid out the situation there. I, I'm just curious what you think about this and what it reflects about the new Cold War that we're living in today. Well, I'm thinking about how at the same time that this has been going on with regard to the Solomon Islands, you have Sweden and Finland now submitting applications to NATO in order to join that military alliance, which is a direct provocation toward Russia. And these same forces who are so concerned about a security, a bilateral security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China have nothing to say with a, a direct provocation on Russia's borders. Finland borders Russia. There's absolutely no hysteria over this. Actually, it is being welcomed by the entire Western media. And as you well know, Ben, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, that NATO has been valorized and has been sanitized. It's been framed as this military alliance, which is the pinnacle of quote-unquote democracy and defending this rules-based international order. Uh, but uh, the hypocrisy is clear. The, this hysteria over the Solomon Islands is, as you said, it's neocolonial, it's racist, it's hypocritical. And the fact that the Western media and the U.S. and Australia can openly call for an invasion and an occupation of the Solomon Islands and the over and regime change of this, in the Solomon Islands, I think shows just how effective this propaganda has been in perhaps not uh, getting um, large numbers of people to openly support wars, but to sort of normalize this new Cold War situation where the U.S. and its allies in the West can make the rules as they go and portray themselves as international law uh, so that things like NATO, these dangerous military institutions, these uh, well-proven uh, weapons of mass destruction in, in their arsenal are effectively kind of stripped of, of their meaning. While a, a bilateral security agreement for a country like the Solomon Islands, which, as you said, has recently undergone immense unrest, which was severely damaging. And you say they were targeting Chinese people, uh, but there's also a lot of infrastructure projects happening in the Solomon Islands with China that uh, also are under threat. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, under uh, the uh, Obama administration, when China began to negotiate with Djibouti over a, a military agreement of a similar kind, which did lead to the first overseas military base uh, for China. Once that was opened, you saw the mainstream media doing the same thing, right? Now the U.S., the West, they're losing Africa. And uh, this military base was seen as this uh, overt example of Chinese imperialism in Africa. 
And this negated the fact that the U.S. had already been openly waging regime change operations in Libya and across North Africa uh, for several years and had militarized the continent under the U.S.-Africa command to the point where now nearly every country except, I think, one, Eritrea, has a relationship with the U.S.-African command, which is a de facto neocolonial relationship and takeover of the militaries of African governments. So uh, the hypocrisy is real and it's in its extreme. And I think small countries like the Solomon Islands, but really any country that decides to go its own path and to lean toward China for any kind of assistance is really vulnerable to this, these kind of attacks. Well, the U.S. can continue to uh, foment military expansionism through NATO without any similar uh, backlash coming toward it from the Western media. Yeah, very, very well said. Very well said, Danny. And the reason I wanted to talk about this with you today, Danny, is first of all, it doesn't really get that much coverage in the Western media. And when it is covered, of course, the angle is always this idea that China is a new neo-colonialist power and all this nonsense. But another reason I wanted to cover it is because this week, the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who is a hardcore right-wing anti-China hawk, made, made an incredible statement. He, he said that if China builds a military base in the Solomon Islands, it would cross a, quote, red line. Now, I, when I saw this statement, my jaw dropped. Because, of course, anyone who has been following the war in Ukraine knows that Russia has been saying, not just for a few months, not just for a few years, for decades, the Russian Federation has said that Ukraine is a red line for Moscow, and that if Ukraine joins NATO, as was made clear in the NATO Bucharest summit in 2008, that it would cross Russia's red line. Now, we have a document, a, a class, formerly classified U.S. State Department cable that was authored by none other than the current CIA director, William Burns, back in 2008 when he was U.S. ambassador to Russia. And in this cable, he warns the State Department saying, look, if Ukraine joins NATO, that is going to cross Russia's security red line and it could invite Russian military intervention and cause a civil war in Ukraine. All of that is exactly what happened. So the U.S. government knew exactly what it was provoking by constantly pushing to have Ukraine join this offensive military alliance, NATO. Well, again, I want to stress that. It's not a defensive alliance. Tell the people of Yugos the former Yugoslavia, tell the people of Libya, tell the people of Afghanistan, they would laugh in your face if you claim that NATO is a defensive alliance. It is an offensive imperialist military alliance. And we have this document in which the top U.S. the top U.S. diplomat in Russia, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, admits that this crosses Russia's security red line. Now we're supposed to cry crocodile tears because Scott Morrison, the Australian prime minister, says that Solomon Islands crosses Australia's red lines. I mean, it, it is incredible. I, I can't think of something more cartoonishly hypocritical. I mean, what was your response when you saw these statements from Australia, Danny? Well, I mean, it's just so counterproductive for Australia. What's ironic? I mean, what's been happening with Australia over the last several years is is really quite historic. 
Australia once was, I mean, still is really one of China's top economic partners. I mean, there's a, there's a deep economic relationship there in terms of trade. Now, Australia is really in the lead toward this disastrous attempt to quote unquote decouple from China economically, while at the same time becoming a military satellite of the United States quite rapidly, actually, in terms of, of the end of the Trump era and into the Biden era. There uh, just were so many examples of Australia uh, moving in this direction. And then, of course, we had the AUKUS uh, military alliance that formed uh, not too long ago, several months ago, between the US, uh, the UK, and Australia which uh, really, right, you have this a nuclear submarine agreement, which will build, I don't know, 20-something submarines over the course of three generations or something like that. But really all it is, is it's just an affirmation of how Australia will do the U.S.'s bidding at any point. And actually has been, as you said, about Scott Morrison, and really much of the Australian polity, the, po- the political situation is uh, so fervently anti-China, so racist that... Australia is really in the vanguard of this attack on Chinese people. I mean, there are, there are polls that show that Australia perhaps has the not only has some of the highest unfavorability ratings towards China in terms of public opinion, but that attacks there against Chinese people who live there are rampant. And if, for me, what all of this says is that Australia is willing to, I mean, you said at the beginning of the program, the Solomon Islands is thousands of miles away, 2,000 miles away uh, from Australia, yet uh, they are claiming, just like the U.S. does in the Monroe Doctrine with Latin America, claiming that the Solomon Islands is its backyard. and really has been claiming that the entire Pacific is its backyard for a while now. Uh, Australia has been doing this really at the behest of the United States, and Morrison is showing himself to just be kind of this loud, racist puppet of whatever U.S. administration is in office, first Trump, now Biden, and it's it's getting quite ugly, and it's and it's a classic case of shooting yourself in the foot because the antagon, antagonizing China, whether it's via proxy, like through the Solomon Islands, or just openly through the think tanks that it funds, like ASBI, or by militarizing the Pacific, continuing dangerous military operations. Uh, uh, or military exercises. I mean, all of this is only going to starve Australia of really what it needs, which is an economic relationship with China. It cannot survive economically without that. The U.S. and Europe are in no position, especially now, to to make up for that. And and I think uh, that's really where Australia is heading. It's kind of a basket case, and and this is just one example of how um, of how bad things are getting. Very, very well said, Danny. Of course, people, we should keep in mind that Australia is also part of the Quad. You mentioned AUKUS, which is very important. AUKUS, this Australia-UK-US military alliance. And as part of AUKUS, Australia is going to be getting nuclear submarines. And Australia's military doesn't have the capability of operating and managing these nuclear submarines. And of course, that expertise is going to come from the U.S. military, which is another way in which the U.S. military is exercising more and more control over Australia. But also Australia is part of the Quad, the so-called Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which consists of the United States, uh, Australia, Japan, and India. And this has been referred to as the 
Asian Pacific NATO, and it's clearly aimed at trying to contain China militarily and politically. And it's really sad to see this country that once had an independent foreign policy become more and more willingly subservient to the U.S. For people who aren't familiar, I would recommend a brilliant uh, report by John Pilger, the great Australian journalist, about a former prime minister of Australia called Gough Whitlam. He was named Gough Whitlam, and he was not even necessarily very radical. He was a he was a left wing Labour Party politician, social democratic, but when it comes to foreign policy, he wanted an independent foreign policy. He was very skeptical of NATO. He was opposed to collaboration with the CIA and U.S. surveillance, and was against the escalation of the first Cold War. And the, the U.S. basically organized a coup.、Uh, the U.S. helped back a kind of political coup to overthrow him, similar to what we saw recently in Pakistan with Imran Khan. But I mean. Pakistan was formerly part of British colonized India. This is a country that has a colonial history. I mean, Australia is a product of colonialism, of of settler colonialism, and even Australia has has basically been, you know, I don't want to say recolonized because the indigenous Aboriginal Aboriginal people of Australia are still suffering from settler colonialism, but Australia has. Has really more and more abandoned its sovereignty, and it's it's really sad to see. And and I know a lot of Australians. I've spoken to many Australians who are against this policy, but unfortunately, we've seen that the the dominant bourgeois political parties in Australia have made it clear that they are going to put all their eggs in the basket of the new Cold War because it's politically advantageous for them, at least from a domestic perspective, to fearmonger about China, and it shows how this. You know, imperialist strategy of demonizing China and also white supremacy. You know, this racist tactic of demonizing the Chinese. It, it is often, you know, it's used by Australian elites and capitalists to try to advance their interests. But it actually, in many many ways, hurts average Australian people. Who, as you said, Danny, I mean, they they would honestly have much more to gain from an economic alliance with the People's Republic of China than with the United States, which. We've seen the effects of economic alliances with the United States. It leads to more neoliberal policies, the Washington Consensus, structural adjustment programs, cutting the minimum wage, privatizing state assets, and more and more poverty, more and more homelessness. Whereas countries that that there's a reason they're joining the Belt and Road Initiative and allying with China because they get infrastructure, they get you know favorable economic agreements, and I mean we we see clearly what option the Australian government. Has chosen so, Danny. I, I want to pivot a little bit here and talk about the new Cold War and the so-called Indo-Pacific region. I mean, this is a funny term. This is a term that was created by the U.S. government. Before that, I mean, very few people were trying to lump India in together with the Pacific region. I mean, if you look at a lot of geopolitical analysis and even historical analysis going back hundreds of years, usually. India is considered part of the South Asian region, along with Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Tibet, to an extent. Which is, Tibet is kind of like the link between East Asia and South Asia. But the idea of lumping together India with Japan and South Korea in the Indo-Pacific region—that that is part of a political project 
that the United States has been pushing forward to try to create this idea of the Indo-Pacific, which is a unified against China, right? That is the entire concept behind the U.S. discussion of the Indo-Pacific region and specifically the idea of the Asia pivot, which is Brian Becker from the Socialist Program often says from the Answer Coalition, when he says when the U.S. talks about a pivot to Asia, it's a pivot to war in Asia. Specifically, it's a pivot to war with China. So what do you think about this U.S. strategy of trying to create this imaginary of the Indo-Pacific region and the attempt to recruit countries to wage war on China? Well, it really does harken back, and this just shows how continuous the first Cold War, or we could say the initial Cold War in the 20th century, is uh, and, and how much it links to this new Cold War. Because the militarists and the imperialists at the head of the U.S. and, and, and the West, uh, when they were competing for the colonies in uh, Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia and the Asia Pacific, uh, they called certain regions, for example, like Vietnam was Indochina. I mean, it, it really is just a way of mapping these regions as targets for domination and expansion. And that is essentially what this uh, policy of an Indo-Pacific military strategy is all about. It's about, in the 21st century, uh, as as you said, and as Brian has said, and as, uh, as others have said, it is a pivot to war, and it, it is all about cementing uh, military hegemony, and for a very good reason, because the impetus for this, the catalyst for this, uh, of course, the initial stages began under uh, the Obama administration uh, around the latter half of his uh, of his first term what began to happen is that there was a realization among much of the US elite but especially those in the camp of, of the neoliberal ruling class they saw kind of the writing on the wall in that the United States uh, after the 2007 2008 crash economic crash just did not have the wherewithal, did not have the capacity to recover in a way that would allow it to compete with China economically in any sort of a competitive manner, that it, it just wouldn't have the capacity to do that because there, there's a slow growth that continues on into today. It's, it's immense slow growth stagnation that's occurring economically for global capitalism, especially the United States. And so the pivot to Asia, this Indo-Pacific strategy, it's a way to compensate for that by using really the only weapon the U.S. has left at its disposal if, in order to maintain domination and, and attempt to expand. And that's mili military. That's the military-industrial complex. And so there was a huge reinvestment. I mean, you had, beginning under the Obama administration, you had a massive shift of nearly every single military asset, the Navy, right? 60% of the U.S. Navy is now in this part of the world. 50% of all the U.S. military assets, half of, nearly half of all of its military bases worldwide reside now in the Pacific. And so, 
it's quite clear what the strategy is. And now with these alliances, right, because that's what Biden's campaign mantra was, let's build alliances, let's rebuild alliances. It's almost this tacit acknowledgement that the U.S. is really at a very weak point in its, I guess you could say, hegemonic reign, right, in its imperialist reign as the top superpower, which began in 1945. It's, it's at its lowest point, and it understands that if it isn't able to mobilize these very compliant countries like Japan, Australia, uh, India to some degree, although India is giving them some troubles, uh, if it's not able to, South Korea, if it's not able to mobilize these countries to an anti-China position, then it will only continue to cede ground to China. And what's very, I think, important about this is that it's a losing strategy. It doesn't have any end game, but uh, perhaps a potential hot war because there is nothing the United States can do militarily that can stop the overall trajectory of the global situation, which is China's economic expansion, its, its growth, and its capacity to build very robust connections with its neighbors, its regional partners, and then, of course, really around the world, and even in Europe, where Europe is uh, really in need. Uh, but the United States, of course, is trying to cut Europe off from both Russia and China, uh, so it's uh, a tenuous situation. But nonetheless, the overall global situation is pointing in this direction, and there's nothing the U.S. militarily can do to change that other than, and this is just the one caveat, I think create a, real, a destabilizing situation in the region. And that's what it's been doing in Myanmar, through covert means, in uh, the Philippines, everywhere. Everywhere where uh, there's a, a close relationship with China, the Kazakhstan, right? There's the U.S. using its soft power and its hard military power to try to create a, a situation of destabilization. And and that's where we're at. I think that's where this Indo-Pacific strategy comes to the fore and, and finds reality or finds a material basis. But it certainly isn't something that I think is laudable or worth celebrating, even for those who, who are championing it. Yeah, you said it very well, Danny. And this actually, this gets me to a question that I've been meaning to ask you for a while, because I, I think, you know, uh, anyone who follows Danny knows that he's a brilliant analyst and, and knows a lot about the attempts to try to isolate China and divide China, and also knows a lot about Vietnam. And I've always wanted to ask you about the attempts by U.S. imperialism to try to, to uh, foster this division between China and Vietnam, which, you know, historically... They, they, they have had a complex relationship and, and U.S. and French imperialism often has tried to encourage that, those divisions between them. But we saw Kamala Harris, the U.S. vice president, visited Vietnam last year, 2021, and it was a, a, a notoriously embarrassing visit because she was clearly visiting Vietnam to try to enlist Vietnam against China. And she, at the same time, she visited the spot where John McCain was shot down when he was bombing civilian infrastructure during the Vietnam War. And she laid a wreath honoring Vietnam 
uh, excuse me, honoring uh, John McCain, who was bombing Vietnam while she's visiting Vietnam, trying to enlist the country against China. So she was symbolically reminding Vietnam of the genocidal U.S. war that resulted in 3.8 million Vietnamese deaths while trying to enlist it against China. It, it shows, I mean, how incompetent many of these ruling class figures are in the United States and how they don't really believe in diplomacy because all they do is just bully countries. But anyway, the point I wanted to get at is clearly this strategy is not working. Gareth Porter, who's a great journalist, wrote an article about the Pentagon's attempt to try to militarily team up with Vietnam against China. And his article detailed how Vietnam has been clearly distancing itself from the U.S., but also it does have some uh, you know, historical tensions with China. So I'm just curious what you think about this strategy by U.S. imperialism to divide Vietnam and China, both of which have socialist governments. Yes, well, it's a, it's a very, I think it's a very important subject that doesn't get a lot of attention. And it's difficult because I think the propaganda around all of this is is pretty strong because, uh, for one, the United States has a huge interest in covering up or in sanitizing and kind of placing in the annals of history, the crimes that still very much affect Vietnam today. I mean, they're still, um, they're still pulling up landmines in, in Vietnam that continue to explode a lot less, but that's only because of the work that Vietnam has had to do the, the arduous work that Vietnam has had to do to ensure that the thousands of landmines that used to explode are now in the hundreds uh, each year. And of course, the legacy of Agent Orange, which continues to create health hazards and, and really steal a lot of both labor and, and uh, sort of economic opportunities for China, for Vietnam. I mean, um, because whenever you have a public health calamity like that, like which occurred, that, that war crime that the U.S. committed, it, it both has a, a public health uh, aspect to it, but also an economic one. And it made the rebuilding of Vietnam even harder. So with that said, I mean, what's so interesting about the last few years uh, with the Vietnam-China relationship is that, well, it had been steadily growing. And I think both sides have kind of resigned themselves to saying, yes, we had differences in the past, but like any good communist party, and I'm a communist, so I, so I, I consider this just to be good politics, is you, you don't air dirty laundry in public, right? You, you resolve conflicts, you resolve issues amongst each other. You don't make it a sort of public issue. The United States has attempted for so sorry, many sorry years. Sorry to cut yeah. you off, Danny, but yeah. I just wanted to say that's a really good lesson for the social media generation. I know. Stop, <laughs> stop airing your dirty laundry with people. Keep it I private. know. If you are, fr- I mean, if you're together, right, and trying to go on a similar path, even with disagreements, right, and this should go for people on the, the actual left, right? <laughs> it's like we should also be, if we have disagreements with each other, we shouldn't be taking a Twitter and say, let me use my followers to kind of like go after other people. No, we should work that out. There's a big difference between, right, just like in the social media sphere, there's a big difference between going after Kamala Harris or going after even uh, uh, sort of uh, milquetoast liberals who are uh, shilling for the Pentagon than it is going after, you know, your fellow socialists or or fellow radicals who are trying to um, 
figure it out and, and you may have disagreements, right? There's difference. And the line gets blurred sometimes, especially in the era of this personality politics. But nonetheless, I think, you know, if you're a socialist, you should operate on a different plane. And I think these two countries have been doing that, right? By steadily increasing economic ties, by uh, not commenting on each other's foreign policy, right? Because I think that's one of the ways Vietnam has been able to kind of negotiate a very complicated situation is they're not demonizing China, right? They, there's not this open condemnation uh, of China. Uh, but the U.S.'s pressure, right, to create an anti-China alliance in the Pacific has led to Vietnam getting closer militarily with the United States in some respects. But lately in the last few years, that's there's been more open acknowledgement and discussion on both sides, Vietnam and China, of just how close they are. I think the pandemic had some to do with this. I also think that um, there, I think it's just this acknowledgement in the region. And I think Vietnam is sort of understanding this uh, more and more is that there is a lot to gain with a relationship with China and China is now understanding there's a lot to gain with a relationship with Vietnam that is just independent of whatever the U.S. hopes to do or wants to do, which is in that great article by Gareth Porter. That's basically what he's saying is like Vietnam is not, it has taken a really hard stance that it's not siding and it, there's no, it doesn't see sides. It's saying, no, this is not something we're going to engage with and it's not going to fall into the Pentagon's lap. Like That's just not going to happen. And at the same time, where you have developments in Vietnam where not only do you have increased bilateral trade, but you have really tangible benefits that come from the relationship with China. Vietnam was able to build its first metro in Hanoi um, within the last year that is now fully operable. It's cheap. I- I've watched the videos from people like Luna Oi, and you see it's you can see the integration there because it looks like, you know, I was in Beijing. It looks like a train station in Beijing. And for Hanoi, for Vietnam, that level of development is very important. And I think the same goes for Laos, Cambodia, these countries that were destroyed by U.S. interventionism and now share a very close relationship with China as well. The Lao, the Sino-Lao railway, the high-speed rail that was just opened within the last year. I mean, these are huge developments and, I think what's really positive right now is that within the last year, you've had China and Vietnam come out and say they have a shared socialist vision. They're promoting socialist ties and that they're not going to get caught up in geopolitical games that the United States is playing. And I think that is probably what prompted Kamala Harris's trip, to be honest with you now, because that's a pretty big shift, right? It went from Vietnam taking a really neutral stance to now Vietnam being much more open about close relationships with China. So I think overall Asia is moving in this direction, but countries like Vietnam, Laos, China, these countries that are much more advanced politically, they just are in a different stage of development. They have socialist governments. Uh, they, They really kind of hold this key to unlock uh, uh, sovereignty and independence in that region that it hasn't been able to see since the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's a really important. And I think that's really positive. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that because I think, um, that it really will, uh, kind of bust these 
propaganda talking points we've heard from the United States over and over and over again, that the U.S. has all of this clout among these countries, Vietnam included, in the Asia Pacific, where really it doesn't have any. And it's, and it's only about how much instability it can create that actually allows it to foster any kind of relationship. You even have South Korea, right, <laughs> on the fence, despite the fact that South Korea's military is a de facto, um, uh, is under de facto control of the United States. And at any moment, if South Korea or, or the United States pushes South Korea to declare war again, right, to break the armistice, the U.S. has full control over South Korea's military. So, I mean, that's, that's the only situation that can foster U.S. power in the region right now. And it's becoming uh, almost uh, further and further uh, from the reality of the situation. The reality is, is that most countries in this region do not want do not want that result for itself because it only brings it only brings suffering and i think vietnam and china have been able to foster relations that are reflective of this understanding yeah and this is also interesting when we look at the economic relations because i think what's fascinating about the us diplomatic strategy in this new cold war to try to contain china and also russia is that the U.S. has been somewhat successful in trying to break Russia's economic alliances, although even even in the past few months, we've seen that it hasn't been as successful as it hoped. So it did get the European Union, South Korea, and Japan to impose sanctions on Russia. And the fact that it, the U.S. got South Korea and Japan, which are militarily occupied by U.S. troops, to join that economic war against Moscow is significant, I think. But at the same time, of course... The U.S. has not gotten India, which has a right-wing, very right-wing government, which is very anti-China, but it also has its own independent economic national interests, relies on Russian energy in particular, but also relies on Russian wheat and Russian fertilizers. India has not joined in this economic war in Russia. And furthermore, I mean, if you look at the U.S. attempt to economically isolate China, it's laughably ineffective. And I wanted to ask you if you have thoughts about this very important free trade agreement in Southeast Asia that was signed just two years ago in 2020. And it was actually, it was signed in Hanoi, or at least, uh, you know, this was during COVID, but uh, Vietnam hosted this, this kind of conference and many people attended digitally. But this is for the so-called RCEP or the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And this brings together a dozen countries in Southeast Asia that represent uh, approximately 30%, nearly, nearly one-third of the global population. And it's been referred to as the, the biggest trade block ever created. And what's interesting about it is it includes China and Vietnam, which we were talking about. It also includes Japan and South Korea. And it even includes Australia, although the U.S. has been pressuring Australia over its involvement in the RCEP. So I'm curious what you think about the, the new economic relations that have been growing, even amidst the U.S. attempt to try to politically isolate China. We've seen that many countries, including U.S. allies like Japan and South Korea, which have tens of thousands of U.S. troops still, they recognize that they still have to continue boosting their economic ties with China because China is, according to GDP measurement, the second biggest economy. But actually, if you 
look at a, at a more a more accurate measurement, which would be purchasing power parity (PPP), because GDP is usually measured in, in U.S. dollars. If you look at PPP, which is measured in local currencies, China is the largest economy on Earth. So obviously, Japan and South Korea, despite being militarily occupied by the U.S., I mean. They're gonna they're gonna want more and more economic relations with this massive economic power, which is right next to them. That's exactly right. And the RCEP, this massive trade agreement, which includes so many so-called adversaries to China. I mean, it's a really an acknowledgement that China is sort of the economic hub of Asia, that, and it's really the economic hub, I think, of, of the so-called underdeveloped world. It's the it's the it's really the center of where global economic growth is going to occur. So really, I mean, it would be disastrous for countries like Japan and South Korea to not participate in this because it would essentially be cutting off their economies from what will be essential trade over the next several years. And so it's, it's very important because it's a trade agreement, which has all the ability to uh, loosen up any kind of restrictions to trade between all of these countries, while at the same time give the character of trade sort of a new face. Because under U.S.-led free trade agreements, we've seen the devastation that has caused uh, all around the world, whether we're talking about Honduras or whether we're talking about Mexico, we've seen how uh, free trade agreements like CAFTA and NAFTA have have absolutely uh, plundered the, these economies. While with China, right, China is still a developing nation itself, despite its immense size. And so China has every interest to ensure that it maintains trade partnerships with so-called adversaries like South Korea, J- Japan, Australia, right? To maintain these because it, it does need uh, the, the technology, the economic uh, relationships. Uh, but at the same time, um, these countries also need, right, the, the, the things that China has been able to uh, kind of come in the lead around, whether it's renewable energy or some of this high technology like 5G telecommunications. So there really is a win-win scenario here that has not really existed under uh, prior free trade arrangements. And uh, there never was that kind of accountability, especially regionally in a region like the Pacific, where much of the Pacific uh, uh, especially the non-so-called Western uh, Pacific countries. Uh, these countries have long histories of underdevelopment that that's, are, are, are due to right, French incursion, British incursion. Uh, uh, these, these countries really do still need uh, to kind of unwrap themselves from the yoke of, of what's now neocolonialism. And, and I think that this, free, this trade, free trade agreement, among all the other uh, economic arrangements that China is leading, right, have the capacity to do that. And so really it's a net positive uh, for the world. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the U.S. and the West continue to respond to this because so far it's been it's been very unkind and very hostile and uh, uh, very dangerous. And so we all have, we have to pay attention to this, especially amid this Russia-Ukraine 
a conflict, this crisis, because I think what we are likely to see is the U.S. ratchet things up with China to try to try to pull a certain scenario like this into being in order to in order to try to weaken China. I think that's what all of the military encirclement is really all about, is how to eventually come to a scenario where you can pull China into a, a broader war that would that would weaken it. Usually it's Taiwan that's the center of that, but but I think the US is is putting out the feelers. Yeah, and I mean we haven't even talked about the fact that the US is is spending billions of dollars to put missiles on the so-called first island chain to surround China with missiles. And of course, Japan and South Korea play a key role in that. And the U.S. goal is eventually to to put a new U.S. military base on Taiwan like it had during the first Cold War that had nuclear weapons pointed at mainland China. But of course, that's, that's not going to happen. The U.S. thinks, you know, lives in fantasy land thinking it's going to recolonize Taiwan. But that's that's just not going to happen. But with that said, Danny Haifung, uh, great friend of the show. It's been a pleasure having you. I know you're a very busy guy and you said you have to go. So uh, I'll leave you with the final words here. And then I'm going to take some calls for anyone who's listening and wants to ask me any questions and we can have a discussion. But I know, Danny, you had you said you have uh, another another, uh, you know, uh, engagement after this. So uh, I, I want to invite everyone who's listening to, to click on his face here. I mean, keep listening to the show, of course, but Click on uh, his, you know, his icon here and call in, follow him, follow his show, Cold War Brew. And Danny, um, you know, any final thoughts and, and where can people follow you? Sure. So uh, thanks so much, Ben, for having me as your first guest. I will have to have you definitely on my show. I was <laughs> still figuring out this tech stuff. I know we both are um, with this uh, new platform, but thank you so much. And no, I think that this is just a, such an important topic because it, it gets at the distinctions that we need to make politically in this very dangerous moment that we're in. And so pointing out this hypocrisy is very important because it gets to the truth of the matter, it gets to the fact that uh, there isn't some kind of equal playing field here where the U.S. and China are equally disastrous, where there's a, a sort of a a competition among capitalist powers. What we're seeing is a new Cold War based on divergent paths that uh, two very different systems are taking. And the dominant one, uh, the U.S.-led uh, imperialist system, is, is taking us on a path of of what is assured destruction. And China and, uh, and countries allied with China are trying to uh, mutually uh, prevent that situation. And so we, we really have to be clear about that because uh, reality says this, reality proves this, but all the propaganda says otherwise and, and it's deafening right now. So thank you. And, you know, you can definitely follow me, subscribe to the, to this podcast that I do uh, here on Colin, Cold War Brew. I do it 11.30 a.m. each Sunday. Sometimes I have to change up the date depending on other things, but generally it's 11.30 a.m. on Sunday. So subscribe to that. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Spirit of Ho and, you know, support my work wherever you can. Patreon, you can find all that stuff on my social media and um, on my call-in profile. So thanks again, Ben. Of course, of course, Danny. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, your wealth of knowledge. And I want to invite everyone listening, definitely follow Danny Haifung on all platforms. Uh, his His great work also at Black Agenda Report. And definitely give him money. Give him your money on Patreon. Thanks, Danny.
appreciate it. Take care, Ben. Talk soon. And now, uh, you know, this is my first episode, so hopefully I can figure this out here. But we've had a caller very patiently waiting, uh, Pedro, here. And, and I, uh, sorry for making people wait. In the future, in future episodes, I'm going to, uh, usually it'll just be me. Every once in a while, I'll have a guest like Danny, but usually it'll just be me, and then I'll invite people to call in. So I'm going to start now, and I'm going to see if I can get Pedro on the line here. Hi, hi, good evening, Ben. Uh, good, good afternoon, I mean. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing, Pedro? Uh, doing good, okay. Uh, so, um, I have a question, actually two questions and a kind of a general statement. Uh, so, the question is, uh, on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being uh, nuclear war and total uh, end of humanity, and 10 being like world peace by United Nations decree where there is no more war. Where, uh, where do you see uh, the world in the next uh, year, two or five or 10 years or whatever? So five, level five, I can, uh, I can call it the, the status quo before the, the recent Ukraine. Ukraine-Russia war, uh, so I guess we are at six now, which is worse than five. So that was my first question uh, regarding the statement. Uh, another question actually is, uh, why do you think uh, this kind of proxy war between the United States and, and Russia since, like, uh, since the end of World War II, basically? Uh, so th these are the two questions. That if, if I can, I can make a quick statement, uh, just quick about uh, what I think about uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, for me, I, I view this as a kind of an echo of World War II. Because what, what happened in World War II regarding uh, Germany and Russia? So uh, there was a a German invasion of Russia and uh, Russian, the Russian people lost about 20 million people in the war. So they have a big trauma uh, and kind of a recent trauma. So the people that are alive in Russia, they have like parents or grandparents and that were, that uh, died in the war. So uh, 20 million people is no... It's no, is a potato. So I, I imagine, I mean, uh, there is a big trauma about uh, any invasion from the the West, basically, from Europe or Germany or whatever. So it's easy to understand that I feel a bit touchy of, of because of this NATO expansion that has been going on since uh, since the end of the Cold War, actually. Your your co-worker Max Blumenthal actually did a great interview to a podcast called um, called uh, Ke uh, Pure Candy or something like that. Uh, I think you should check it out uh, or ask him. Or I can I, I can send you on Twitter or the, the the link. You can you should listen to it. it, it it, it, it really explains the issue, but anyway, how do I see it? I see it as an echo of, of the of the war because uh, there was a big Ukraine. What happened in the war? 
So there was a big, uh, this nationalist called Steven Bandera, uh, they did atrocities against the, some population that live in Ukraine that were, I, I guess, ethnic Russians or, or Jews. They, they basically, there was a, they basically, they, they exterminated, what happened, they, they just gathered them uh, in villages and they, they shot them in, in mass graves. It was like maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands, I don't know. So th there is a big hatred between these two ethnic populations, like Ukrainians and Russians. And of course, th th why did this happen in World War II? I guess it was also an echo what what happened in the 1920s. So there was a big famine in Ukraine called uh, Volo, Volo Mondor or something like that. That uh, historians blame on Stalin. I don't know if he's right or not, but uh, actually people died because of hunger. There, there are reports of cannibalism. So I don't know if... The, what happened in World War Two? This uh, the extermination of Russians was a direct cause of that. I don't know, but but one can see there 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 is this not love loss, no love loss between these two ethnic countries. So I view this a, a kind of an echo of what happened in World War Two. So that's what I think. So regarding the question, so if you it was uh, how do you see this happening in the future and uh, that's all i have to say have a good day thank you thank you pedro I, I appreciate the comments and the questions and thank you for patiently uh waiting and listening um throughout my conversation with danny so uh, on the scale from one to ten uh where i see the war in in the next few years unfortunately i see it pretty much continuing status quo ante i think it's going to be very similar to the situation now, because we've seen that really the U.S. empire, the institutional apparatus in Washington, <clears throat> the military industrial complex has no vested interest in pushing for more peace and less war. It's the exact opposite. They continue have a vested, having a vested interest in, in <clears throat> keeping these wars at a simmer, right? So they obviously don't want to escalate to nuclear war. So on your scale of one to 10, I, I don't think realistically that, that we're going to be seeing a nuclear war. I hope I'm right. I mean, I guess I could be wrong, but that would be the end of humanity. And no one wants to believe that that's realistically going to happen. But I do think that the people in the Pentagon who tend to be, frankly, this is not in any way a compliment to them, but speaking realistically, they tend to be actually a little more level-headed and less ideological than the people in the State Department. The people in the State Department, like Victoria Newland and Anthony Blinken, they're motivated by this very neoconservative, hyper-imperialist ideology, whereas the bureaucrats in the Pentagon who have to deal with the military apparatus, I mean, clearly there is corruption with the military-industrial complex and people you know, lobbying and getting money from these companies, but at the same time, they understand how dangerous many of these conflicts are and they don't want to start a war directly with Russia. That's why we see that in this, this proxy war in Ukraine, the Pentagon has been in some ways slightly less hawkish than the State Department, especially people like Victoria Nuland who want a war with Russia directly, whereas the people in the Pentagon understand how disastrous that would be. So I think in, in terms of the U.S. you know, policymakers in Washington, I think they see it 
as the the way the conflict is dragging on now is good for U.S. imperialist interests. They can continue to increase the military budget. They can force NATO bloc discipline to inc- to force other countries in Europe to increase their military budgets to ally with the U.S. military to continue isolating Russia and by extension China. But they don't want it to escalate too much further because then it could actually start doing serious damage. And we already, of course, are seeing economic damage through sanctions uh, backfiring and creating a lot of inflation. So for the U.S. war, you know, the war machine, it's good to have these conflicts simmer and continue to prolong them, which is why the U.S. continues to flood Ukraine with billions of dollars of weapons. But I don't think they want an escalation. Although, of course, there is a possibility of escalation, which would be extremely dangerous. So we should be very careful about the escalation possibility. Now, as for the reasons for the Ukraine war, I think you definitely hit some of the important context. Obviously, we can't ignore the historical context of the role of Ukraine in World War II, which was occupied by Nazi Germany. And there were Ukrainians, of course, who valiantly resisted the Nazi occupation And let's not forget that of the 27 million Soviets who died in World War II, around 6 million of them were Ukrainians and about 17, 18 million were Russians. So a lot of Ukrainians sacrificed their lives in World War II fighting fascism, fighting Nazism. But of course, we can't forget that there were also at the same time, many Ukrainians who collaborated with the Nazis. And of course, the the famous organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the OUN, led by Stepan Bandera, that faction, the extremely far-right fascist faction, they willingly collaborated with the Nazis, and they have this kind of fascistic ideology that is still very prevalent in Ukraine today. And after the U.S.-backed coup in February 2014 in Ukraine, that kind of Banderite ideology, that fascist ideology based on Stepan Bandera, was directly incorporated into the state apparatus. There were laws passed that made Stepan Mandera into an official national hero, and it's actually illegal. It's a, cr- it's a crime punishable by multiple years in prison to, to uh, say things bad about Stepan Mandera in public because he's officially recognized by the government as a national hero. So I think that you're right that that history is an important part of this. We can't understand what motivates the the far-right neo-Nazi Ukrainian ultranationalists without understanding that history. But I also think that it's not sufficient. It is necessary to understand it, but it's not sufficient to understand the conflict. The conflict, I think, is more directly related to 2008 and 2014. What happened in those two dates? In 2008, NATO held the famous Bucharest Summit in Romania, in which the U.S. government under George Bush Jr., George W. H. George, De- excuse me, George W. Bush, George Bush Jr., famously declared that Ukraine and also Georgia, both of which were part of the Soviet Union, were going to be part of NATO. They didn't say maybe; they said that that Ukraine and Georgia were going to be eventually in NATO. And of course, this angered Russia. Putin gave a famous speech criticizing this, and that was. 2007 was really the first time that Putin gave a speech in which he started to criticize the West. Because before that, Putin had been the follower of Boris Yeltsin. And the idea was that Russia was after overthrowing the Soviet Union and implementing capitalism, that Russia was going to integrate into the capitalist West, into Europe. And of course, that didn't happen because the U.S. did not want Russia to integrate into the West because the U.S. knew 
that if Russia got back on its feet, economically speaking, and after the massive shrinking of the economy in the 1990s and the years of neoliberal shock therapy, if Russia was able to once again become an economic superpower, it would challenge U.S. unipolar hegemony and challenge U.S. economic domination of Europe. So the U.S. never wanted Russia to be incorporated into the West on equal footing. It always wanted Russia to subordinate itself. And of course, Russian leaders would never have that because they have their own separate interests. They're not, they're not going to be satellites of Washington. So Putin gave this famous speech in 2007, which was kind of the first moment in which he started criticizing U.S. hegemony. He used the term hegemony. And 2008, the U.S. says Ukraine and Georgia are going to become part of NATO. And then Georgia, at the pressure of the U.S., the U.S. gave Georgia the green light to start a war with Russia. We have evidence of this, even the New York Times admitted, that Georgia is the one that started this war, and they blame it on Russia, but Russia, of course, responded to, to Georgian provocations, and Georgia lost that war. But that was the beginning of the, the deep souring of Western relations with Russia. And then I mentioned 2014 being the other important date. Of course, that's the date in February when the U.S. backed a coup that overthrew the elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, in Ukraine who wanted positive relations with both the West and Russia. He's often referred to in the Western media as a so-called pro-Russian leader, but in reality, he was a neutral leader. He wanted good relations with both the West and Russia. He was overthrown, and of course, we, we see what happened since then. A very pro-Western regime was installed that illegalized being a communist. It's, the communist parties were illegalized. All use of communist symbols were illegalized. Singing the Internationale, the famous socialist anthem, was illegalized. And since then, Zelensky has also criminalized the other socialist parties. So basically, being a socialist in Ukraine became illegal, and you and it became a, a mandatory part of state policy that you had to honor these Nazi collaborators and Ukrainian fascists. And the government encouraged this extreme ideology, and, and it discriminated against the Russian-speaking Ukrainians, who represent about one-fifth of the population. That's a very significant minority. I mean, in terms of the U.S. comparison, about, you know, 13, 14, potentially 15 percent of the U.S. population is black. And, of course, there's a lot of racism against black Americans. And, of course, that, that is very well known around the world. Well, Russian ethnic Russians in Ukraine represent an even larger percentage of the population, about, you know, 18, potentially 19, 20 percent of the population of Ukraine. And they, they tend to be concentrated largely in the eastern part of Ukraine. And they had their rights systematically violated. They weren't allowed to use their language in, in schools, in, in media outlets. They passed laws saying that, that media had to be in Ukrainian language and all of this. So we saw a massive repression of their rights. And then there are people who rose up. And this caused a civil war. And the U.S. and NATO fueled the civil war. For the past eight years, 14,000 Ukrainians died in that conflict, according to the United Nations, before Russia sent a single troop in this February. And that crisis right on Russia's border caused a lot of instability. It caused massive displacement of millions of Ukrainians. It turned Ukraine into the poorest country in Europe. And then, of course, throughout this, we saw that while the U.S. and NATO were fueling this war, they also were pushing for what they call military interoperability. And as recently as November 2021, a few months before Russia in intervened, NATO was doing military exercises with the Ukrainian military 
and the Ukrainian military leadership was talking about their plans to integrate into NATO and Europe. And they, they specifically use the language of military interoperability, which basically means integration. So those are the real factors that, that broke the, that's the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, for Russia. And in December 2021, Russia presented a series of security guarantees that they demanded from the U.S. and the European Union and NATO. And they were very basic security guarantees. Neutrality for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine and Georgia will never become part of NATO. Uh, withdrawing these advanced missile systems. Uh, all, all basic things that e the U.S. would certainly demand in a similar situation if Mexico and Canada were going to join an offensive Russia-led military alliance. And, and Russia was spending billions of dollars arming and training fighters in Mexico and Canada. So the fact that the U.S. and NATO and the EU ignored all of Russia's demands for security guarantees, that was the final straw. And Russia said, look, we, this is an existential issue for us. We have to act at this point. And of course, there are allegations that Ukraine was planning an attack in the Donbass. I mean, that could be true. Of course, we'll never know because Russia took the first action and, and attacked. And of course, we, it's not I, 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 don't, I don't say that, you know, uh, Gladly, it's never good to see war escalate, but we can't understand what's going on in Ukraine without understanding all that historical context. Of course, what you said with World War II is important context as well. But I think the real factors that we have to keep in mind are 2008 and then 2014 and the civil war that the U.S. fueled in Ukraine in the past eight years. So, uh, Pedro, thank you for for your comments. And I'm going to jump to the next caller here. I, I believe it's uh, Reina. Let me see if I can uh, uh, go to... All right, here I'm going to bring in Reina. That's... Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you doing? I can hear you well. Okay, that's uh, very Latin American of you. It's actually pronounced Rena. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, good to, uh, good to find you on, on the call-in app. And thanks to a couple of your listeners that I follow that I got little alerts from, uh, saying that you had a show. I've been trying to keep up with all the new people who are having shows, but, uh, it helps to, uh, follow some like-minded people on here because sometimes they know things that, that the rest of us don't. Um, I had, had a question for you regarding all the media censorship, um, not specifically the Elon Musk stuff, but uh, are you, I'm, I'm kind of stunned by how fast and ruthless the censorship regime uh, has been. And um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about where you see it going. Um, just speaking from a consumer point of view, I try to follow people on as many different platforms as they have. Um, a lot of people are, you know, if they're on YouTube, they're also on Rumble and Rockfin and and Odyssey and Twitch and and I'm not saying that I that I do all of those because it's mind-boggling. Um, Telegram seems to be another one that a lot of people are not moving to, but adding to. And I, I just wonder how you see all of this shaking out. I, 
I'm sure you've been subject to some uh, strictures simply because of uh, the type of reporting that you do. And um, th that's really my question. Um, the other reason for calling in is there are not nearly enough women on this on this platform uh, who call, uh, who are either listeners or callers, and it's kind of interesting. Of course, I do think it matters what the caliber of the women is, and uh, and there are some very good ones on this platform, both as hosts and callers and listeners. And that that's really all I have to say. Just how how do you see the direction of our new censorship regime? Thanks very much, Ben. Well, thanks for joining, uh, Rena. I appreciate the comments. And yeah, I agree. It's always good to have more women out there, um, especially putting an anti-war perspective out there. And a friend of mine, a good friend, Abby Martin, launched a show. Uh, you should check out Dost. She has her show here. And Katie Halper is on. But I agree, definitely, we need to have much more diversity. In terms of censorship, this is a great question. I mean, this is something that I've been <clears throat> reporting on for several years as a journalist. I've been putting a lot of attention on this. So I can't say, unfortunately, that I'm very surprised about how quickly it's been with the escalation of the war in Ukraine and the response banning Russian media outlets on YouTube and other platforms. Uh, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised because this is exactly what happened to Iranian media outlets like Press TV and Espan TV and other platforms we saw that first they were all banned in social media, and then the FBI actually seized their domain names. So if you go to PressTV.com, you get this message from the U.S. Department of Justice saying that it was seized by the U.S. government. I mean, that really shows how much the U.S. cares about freedom of speech. It literally seizes the domain names of foreign media outlets from boogeyman country who are not allowed to hear their perspective. So... Uh, unfortunately, that didn't surprise me. But of course, you're right that it's been very rapid, the growth of censorship. But I think we should understand that this is not coming out of nowhere, right? Uh, this also goes back to Russiagate. And when Donald Trump was elected, the Democratic Party and their supporters put out this conspiracy theory that it was all Russia's fault and the Kremlin and blah, blah, blah. And that led to numerous laws that were passed, including a law that forced Russian media outlets in the United States to register with the FARA office, which is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So they had to register these journalists, including people who are U.S. citizens and not even in any way linked to Russia, uh, who worked at RT and Sputnik. They were forced, you know, their employer was forced to register as a foreign agent. And my friend Lee Camp, who had a great show on RT, although that was now ended, redacted tonight, he, he famously, you know, uh, joked at the beginning of his show. He always said, uh, welcome to Redacted Tonight, a show about America hosted by Americans in America who are called foreign agents. I mean, so that, that was the kind of beginning, right? That's that was opening Pandora's box. And then when the U.S. did that, it started registering Iranian media outlets and also Chinese media outlets as foreign agents. And I think the next big censorship especially as, as the conflict over Taiwan heats up. The U.S. has sent troops to Taiwan and is trying to encourage a secessionist movement there. I think the next big purge is going to be Chinese media and anyone linked to China. So it didn't really surprise me, but what can we do about it? Well, you know, there's a lot of people now who are very hopeful because Elon Musk just bought Twitter. Honestly, I mean, I, I can't say I'm very hopeful. Uh, the fact that he does say he supports freedom of speech, I mean... 
maybe he'll be slightly better. But the reality is that Elon Musk is part and parcel of the U.S. national security state. His companies have gotten billions of dollars from the U.S. government. And he portrays himself as like this brave, independent figure. But I mean, there has been reporting at LA Times and other outlets showing how the only reason a lot of his companies have continued to exist is because of big subsidies from the U.S. government, especially uh, his electric car subsidies for Tesla. He's gotten billions of dollars of subsidies for his electric cars that have prevented Tesla from going under. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who say that's kind of like an Enron style scenario where, you know, Tesla is so massively overvalued. It's it's like more highly valued than the, like the next nine biggest car manufacturers combined, including like Honda and Toyota and Ford, even though even though Tesla only produces like 50,000 cars a year. So, I mean, that aside, then there's also, you know, his comments about the coup in Bolivia, where the U.S. government backed this coup to overthrow Bolivia's democratically elected socialist and indigenous president, Evo Morales, and Bolivia has some of the largest lithium reserves in the world. And it was clearly that was one of the main reasons for the coup, because lithium is needed for electronic batteries and technologies and cars and phones and computers. And Elon Musk was called out on Twitter by someone who said, you know, why are you supporting this coup over lithium? And Elon Musk responded, we will coup whoever we want. So, I mean, we also know that Elon Musk is, you know, he does support freedom of speech ostensibly, but he's also linked to some right-wing politicians in the U.S. So, I mean, we'll see where it goes. It would be hard for it to be worse than it is now. So maybe the, the censorship will get slightly less bad under Elon Musk, but I don't expect it to get significantly better. And, you know, we, we, at the end of the day, we can't expect billionaire oligarchs to save us, even if they tend to be a billionaire oligarch who is more sympathetic to freedom of speech. Because he also has a bottom line that he's interested in, in advancing. And as a capitalist, I mean, that's what his interests are at the end of the day is making money. So if he has to, you know, uh, censor some people to make money and to prevent U.S. government censorship or U.S. government regulation, rather, of Twitter, then he'll probably do that. Now, the other point that you made is important, and that's about the creation of all these new platforms. I mean, you're right. It's kind of overwhelming how many platforms there are. And unfortunately, I don't think any of them has really picked up the same kind of momentum other than TikTok, which I have no interest in. I mean, it's a lot of young people and it's all video based. But, um, you know, I what is my strategy? What do I think people should do? I think people should create profiles on all of those other platforms. And at, at least for now, I think we should use all of them until we see kind of where it goes. Right. Because in my view is at this moment, we don't really have the luxury of only being on a few platforms. I think we have to be in all of them. So I have my videos on YouTube and Rumble and Rockfin and Odyssey. And I am on Twitter. I'm also on Telegram. I'm also on VK. I'm also on uh, Mastodon. I'm on Minds. Unfortunately, the reality is that of course, I believe that we should create new platforms that challenge the Silicon Valley monopolies like Facebook, which owns uh, which owns Instagram and WhatsApp and Google, which owns YouTube. Of course, I believe we should challenge those companies. But the reality is that there are billions of people on Facebook and hundreds of millions on Twitter and billions on Instagram. And there are not that many people on the other smaller platforms. So if we want to, you know reach out to 
people and, and try to challenge mainstream corporate media narratives, I think we need to have the biggest audience possible. So I, I don't have an, a solution to all of this. Right now, I think there's a lot of people just trying to create new platforms, and I hope some of them catch on and can start competing. But the reality is that these big Silicon Valley corporations, they're U.S. government contractors, and they have so much money that they can just try to crush all competition. So I think it's going to be a difficult struggle moving forward, but we just got to we gotta keep doing what we can to be on as many platforms as we can and to get the word out. So thank you, Rena. I appreciate you calling in, and 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 I'm glad you were. Um, I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for being patient throughout all this episode. And finally, I'm going to end this episode here with one other caller, which is Mike. So, Mike, uh, you're next. Go ahead. Hello. Can you hear me, Ben? I can. I can. How you doing? Hey, thank you for taking the call, and congratulations on launching the new show on a new platform, just like you were talking about. I think it's really good that you're on a platform not owned by the wealthiest uh, man on the planet. <laughs> um, my question has to do with China. Uh, I know it would have been a good question for Danny, but from your perspective, especially in Latin America, um, I know some countries have some reservations now that we see China's ascendancy um, because of what happened in the first Cold War, um, I know you've talked about it on some of the previous work that you've done, but essentially China kind of teamed up with U.S. imperialism as they turned away from the uh, Soviet Union. Now, fast forward to today, what is like the atmosphere like? What is like what are people on the left in Latin America? How do they view China's rise? You know, there are still some contradictions, right? Obviously, they have like really strong relationships with um like Colombia <laughs> or Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. Israel. Like at what point do those contradictions become a problem or do they become a problem? And what's kind of just the overall um, view of China's rise in Latin America, keeping in mind that kind of history of, of what happened in the first cold war. Great question, Mike. Um, thank you so much. I'm glad you were patient and, and, and asked this excellent question. Look, um, I think I, I'm of the mind, I have disagreements with people about this. Some, there are some people who disagree, but I'm of the mind that we should be very honest about that history because the Chinese, the Communist Party of China and the Chinese uh, left is itself honest about this history. They have internal divisions, right? The idea that the Communist Party of China is one homo homogenous entity is absurd. I mean, there's, there's, uh, 10, uh, excuse me, there's 90 million, I believe, members. And a lot of those people, I'll be honest, are not even very deeply believing socialists. They're people who join because if you want to be involved in politics or other institutions in China, you join the Communist Party of China. And unfortunately, let's be real, that's how it was in the Soviet Union. There are people who didn't believe in socialism, like uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who became leaders of the Communist Party because they wanted personal advancement. There's always going to be opportunists in any society who join. They don't believe in it necessarily. And in China, certainly, there are a lot of political divisions. And there were people in the leadership who were much more pro-West and who took a path basically deciding that they wanted to ally with U.S. imperialism. And they did so against the Soviet Union. And we should be honest, I think, about the fact that 
in the 1970s and 80s, the, the People's Republic of China's foreign policy was not good. I mean, let's be real. Again, this is a historical fact that China supported Pinochet in Chile because Allende was seen as being pro-Soviet. China supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. China even supported some of the horrible colonialist regimes in Africa because it's the Soviet Union was supporting national liberation struggles like in Angola, for instance. So, I mean, that that's a really very bad history that we need to deal with. We need to understand those contradictions because China took this position, which I think we need, we should criticize, that Soviet so-called social imperialism was worse than capitalist imperialism and it was more of a threat. And unfortunately, that was not only ideologically motivated, but it was also because of mistakes made by the Soviet Union, which we should recognize, including there definitely was this kind of chauvinism, especially from Khrushchev. And there were attempts by people like Khrushchev and the, and the, the leadership in the Soviet Union who were also trying to do the same thing. They were trying to ally with the U.S. against China. And it, it ended up being the other way. But uh, we should always be vigilant for those opportunists. They, they exist in every society. And they're dangerous, especially when they get into leadership roles in you know, Khrushchev was eventually pushed out after just a few years. But I mean, it shows the the very real possibility that that the history could have gone in a different direction. And it could have been the Soviet Union who allied with the U.S. against China. So I'm not necessarily saying that this is some uniquely evil thing that China did. But it, it you know, we need to recognize the historical reasons that, that gave rise to that split. I would actually recommend for people who are interested in this, um, Ken Hammond is a brilliant uh, scholar on this history and the Sino-Soviet split. He teaches at the University of New Mexico and he has several books, but also I would recommend his books, but also he did a very good several hour long podcast series with friend of the show, Brian Becker over at his podcast, The Socialist Program. And they talk about the complex reasons leading to the Sino-Soviet split and China eventually allying with the U.S. against the Soviet Union. And again, Although I think we should recognize that the Chinese leadership does bear responsibility, so does the, the Soviet leadership. And it's a complex historical issue, and it's a real tragedy. I mean, I think it's one of the main reasons that capitalism won the Cold War, the first Cold War, because if you look at, you know, in the 1960s, the vast majority of, of uh, formerly colonized countries were having socialist or progressive nationalist revolutions, and by the 1970s, around, you know, their estimates vary, but around half to two thirds of the global population lived in countries that call themselves socialists. You know, even India, the Indian National Congress, they, they incorporated socialism into the constitution of India, which is technically still there. Although after the, the rise of neoliberalism and the overthrow of the socialist bloc, the Indian National Congress became more and more neoliberal and India today has a very right wing government. But the point is that there was a moment at the at the kind of peak of the first Cold War where it really looked like capitalism was going to lose. And I think, unfortunately, one of the main reasons for that, that victory is because of the Sino-Soviet split that we really should study. Now, as for today, I mean, China is very different today. It is on a very different path. And you know, I respect I respect the analysis of, of friends and comrades and scholars and others who have articulated this analysis that China has always been on the same path going back to Deng Xiaoping and 
and that, you know, there were these kind of contradictions along the way, but it's all this path towards Xi Jinping. I mean, there's elements of truth in that. I'm not one of these people who says, you know, Deng Xiaoping is the evil dog revisionist who's the, who brought, put China on the capitalist path and he's the, he's Satan himself reincarnated. I think Deng Xiaoping is a complex figure and within the Communist Party of China, there are a lot of debates about Deng Xiaoping. I mean, it's, I think, you know, there's definitely elements of criticism of, of maybe perhaps going too far with the market reforms. But I think it's also true that, you know, that China was able to survive when the Soviet Union was overthrown and when there was counter-revolution in many other countries around the world and China was able to continue developing on a socialist path. And yes, it, and sometimes you do have to take two steps back to take one step forward, but China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty. And we have to ask if Deng Xiaoping and the reforms were supposedly just complete neoliberalism as as was claimed by David Harvey in his book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, you know, putting Deng Xiaoping up there with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, which again, regardless of what you think about Deng Xiaoping, I think is a complex figure. I think putting him on the, on the same, you know, uh, the same level as Reagan and Thatcher is absurd. And if, if supposedly the Chinese reforms were just total neoliberalism, like India did, why is India still suffering with so much massive poverty and underdevelopment? compared to China, considering India had independence from British colonialism in 1947, and China had its communist revolution in 1949. And we see a very similar development path at the beginning, and then that diverges. So clearly, China was doing something very different. It wasn't the same as neoliberalism. I think that history is complicated, and I'm not an expert on China, and I would never claim to say that I understand the internal intricacies of the debates within the Communist Party of China. Someone like Ken Hammond, who speaks fluent Mandarin Chinese, he would be someone who, who understands those internal debates going on with the Communist Party of China. But I think it's objectively true that the rise of Xi Jinping represents a certain faction of the party coming to power. And let's not forget that when Xi Jinping first came into power nearly a decade ago now, he, he launched a basically an internal battle against corruption and there was corruption, but I think we should also understand that the internal battle against corruption was also an ideological battle. And when they say it was a battle against corruption, it was also a battle against the capitalist rotors, the people who joined the Communist Party of China and became leaders to advance their personal interests and to advance the interests of capital. And in many ways, corruption is also just advancing the interests of capital. So I think that we should, rec I mean, again, I... I don't disagree with the people who say that Xi Jinping does represent a certain continuity that goes back even to Mao and to Xi Jinping and the other leaders after him, Lu Jiaxi and others. But at the same time, I think we should recognize that there, there has been a shift to the left under Xi Jinping's leadership. And there are, you know, still more left-wing factions of the Communist Party of China, but we've seen figures within the Communist Party who were previously marginalized who have been given platforms in the media. We've seen, for instance, Global Times, which represents a kind of certain perspective of the Communist Party, which is owned by the People's Daily, so it's a semi-official semi newspaper. The Global Times has taken a much more uh, overtly left-wing perspective on economic issues and on its foreign policy. It's been very outspoken against imperialism, more and more so. So I think that 
that we that there are two main reasons for that. I think one, the rise of Xi Jinping definitely represents a move toward the left. And also, I think there's another important factor, which is just the material conditions have shifted drastically. China has become a much more significant economic power. And ever since the 2008 financial crash, China has become more and more of an economic leader in the world. Uh, with the 2008 crash showed the fundamental crisis within these Western neoliberal economies. And the Chinese economy, it was, was I mean, it, it didn't necessarily uh, thrive, but it did not suffer in the same way at all as the Western economies did in the 2008 crash. In fact, many economists, they, they say China actually should be thanked for helping to bail out these, these Western neoliberal economies from the crash that they created in 2008. And the material conditions have shifted. And we've seen that that's why it was after the, the 2008 crash that the Obama administration came in and the Hillary Clinton State Department declared the pivot to Asia. A lot of that is recognition that the Chinese economy was going to continue to grow. And the U.S. ruling class, the reason they welcomed, they welcomed that, that original alliance with China and they welcomed China into the World Trade Organization is they were under the impression that partial liberalization of the Chinese economy would lead to political liberalization. And we saw that that did not happen. And the Communist Party is still firmly in charge. The financial system is still firmly in state control in China. The commanding heights, much of the commanding heights of the economy is still under state control, including telecommunications, including infrastructure, including natural resources, and including land. So I think it's a complicated process. Like I said, I'm, I think we should recognize that there were definite errors made and very bad errors made. But like I said, sometimes you have to take a few steps back to take a step forward. And now China has been has clearly said that its goals are to become a moderately prosperous socialist society by 2050. And its goals are common prosperity, which means encouraging uh wealth redistribution and forcing wealth redistribution. And now that they've lifted 800 million people out of poverty, and now that they've defeated extreme poverty, their goal is to move toward equality. So I think that that process should absolutely be encouraged and supported. While we do understand those contradictions going on. And I mean, we've seen people write books called, there's a book, I think it's called the Chinese coup actually, and there are these Western so-called China experts who are often not really experts, but they have been openly calling for Western powers to encourage the divisions within the Communist Party of China and to encourage the more pro-Western reformist elements who would be considered the kind of capitalist rotors. But right now they're on their back feet and they're definitely not in charge. Now, the last thing I'll say is in the global South, China has a very positive reputation. I mean, there are... On the Latin American left, there are some ill feelings going back to the 1970s and 80s. I mean, for instance, in the Sandinista front, there were some people who who were kind of, they had complex feelings about China because even though the, the Sandinista front, they did recognize the People's Republic of China in the 1980s after the revolution. The, the, the People's Republic of China did not have friendly relations with Nicaragua. They were actually pretty sympathetic to the Contras because they saw the Sandinistas as being much too friendly to the Soviet Union. And they wanted the Sandinistas to be to break their ties with the Soviet Union, which they would never do because the Soviet Union gave them arms and supported them in their armed struggle 
against this U.S. dictatorship. So this U.S. puppet dictatorship. So there are some of those feelings, but honestly, in the past, just in this, in this the past few months, they've basically gone away. Because, like I said, that history is very different. The political situation has changed, and today in Nicaragua, China is seen very positively. Sandinistas, especially young Sandinistas who don't recommend who don't remember the eighties, they see Xi Jinping as a major leader of the international left. They see China as a hope for their country, as a model for the, how they can overcome extreme poverty and how they can develop and go from a formerly colonized country to a massive economic power. And across Latin America, especially in Venezuela, in Venezuela, among the Socialist Party of Venezuela, United Socialist Party, China is seen very positively as a model for what they can do. And China has also helped Venezuela. I mean, being realistic, if it were not for China's economic help, I don't think Venezuela would have been able to survive the brutal economic blockade imposed on China by the U.S. with these illegal sanctions. And in Cuba, of course, China is very, very uh, well received. In fact, Fidel Castro said that China provided the best hope for the left in the 21st century. So I think, you know, we have to grapple with that history. Certainly in the Communist Party of China, they have debates about that history. And if we read Global Times, I mean, there are in English. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I know very little Chinese. I would never claim to be a Chinese expert. In my view, if you can't speak the language, you can't be an expert. So I'm not privy to the Chinese language discussions going on. But I think we should read Global Times. And that can give us more of a perspective of what a lot of people in the, in the Communist Party of China are thinking. And it's very clear that in the past several years, really the past decade, there has been a very marked shift, politically speaking. And a lot of people around the Global South, they see China as an ally in that struggle. So with that said, I want to thank everyone who listened. I want to thank everyone who called in. And of course, this episode will be available after as a podcast. So, and you can find that podcast available on different platforms, including, I think, you know, Spotify and Google Podcasts and iTunes. There's going to be an RSS feed. So thanks everyone for joining me here for the first episode of Rules-Based Disorder. I'll be doing shows here every week exclusively at Colin. So I'm going to thank everyone and I will see you all next time. Thanks a lot.